Welcome to Big Bear Christian Center's online sermon podcast. Thank you for joining us today as Pastor Jeff concludes his two-part message titled, The Amos Bomb. Amos's announcements, he was from Judah, but God called him to prophesy to Israel and to go to the worship center at Bethel and to speak the word of the Lord there. He was a shepherd, a sheep breeder. He was, not, uh, he was an educated man. He, he knew stuff. He was not just a guy out under a bush somewhere with a flock of sheep. He was a sheep breeder. He was a herdsman, the Bible tells us. We don't know much more about him. But in order to have that status in life, he certainly was what we would consider to be a professional. And I've told the story before that when I fly on planes, one of the things that's always difficult is how's that conversation going to go with the person next to you? And uh, if, if I tell them, I'm, they say, well, what do you do? If I say I'm a pastor, they either, one of two things occurs. Uh, one is that I have a counseling session for the duration of the flight. Or two, they ignore me completely. And I, because I don't like to risk which one it's going to be, especially if I'm not up to a two or three hour counseling session, um, I, I've devised some other answers. One of them was on a plane when the gentleman says, so what do you do? I said, well, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. And he said, well, try me. I said, I, I'm a shepherd. And he paused and he looked at me and said, you mean like, like sheep? I said, yeah, like sheep. <laughs> really? He said, I've never met anybody who was a shepherd. And I said, well, you won't be able to say that tomorrow. Um, and so we got to talking, and he was interested in how many sheep I had. And, you know, how, really? How many? Well, what is a shepherd? You know, we went through all that for a while, and then he went off to reading, and I got to spend some time alone, and Right before we landed, I tapped him on the shoulder. I said, listen, i got to straighten up with you before we land. I said, you know, I told you I was a shepherd. We talked about the sheep and all that. I said, these, these sheep are real people. I'm a pastor. He goes, oh, I get it now. And, and I thought, no, you don't really. But nonetheless, it was fun. You know, Amos was a professional. He was a sheep breeder. He was tending the flock. And he says of himself in this little book that he wrote, he said that God called me from following the flock. Sounds like King David, doesn't it? Same thing, same call. I was tending the sheep and God called me and said, go to Israel and give them my words. When he did that in, uh, in Bethel, the one obstacle that he really got up against was the high priest, Azariah, the leader of the religious movement that was going on in the center of worship of Israel. And, and it's recorded in Amos that he says, you know what, Jeroboam, King Jeroboam, you need to get rid of this Amos guy because he's prophesying things that are going to take down the nation. He's saying that you're going to go into captivity and you're going to die. Send him home. And so he goes to Amos and says, you go be a seer somewhere else. Go back to your house and prophesy. Don't ever prophesy in Israel anymore. We don't want to hear from you, you old sheep herder, you. Go home. Get out of here. And his response was, you know what? I'm not a prophet. I was, I'm not even the son of a prophet. To be a prophet in Israel was really a highly regarded occupation, if you will. It meant that God had put his hand on you, separated you out from everybody else to be part of his vocal atmosphere of telling people what was going to happen ahead of time in the nation. And oftentimes a prophet would beget a prophet. 
and, and put them in the, in the school of the prophets. And, they would, and, and so you had a generational possibility in that calling. But Amos said, I'm not the son of a prophet. I never was a prophet. I was just keeping my sheep when God tapped me on the shoulder and said to come up here and tell you these things. So here's what's going to happen to you. And he announces a judgment against the high priest. Pretty much says his wife's in trouble, his kid's in trouble, he's in trouble, and they're all going to go into captivity if they don't die first. And all those things come to pass. You know, the prophets spoke to Israel in times of crisis. Historically and, and morally, whenever the nation got into a crisis or a problem, the prophets' ministry rose up. When you look at the minor prophets, or, and even include Isaiah and Jeremiah, the larger ones, uh, Daniel, you'll find that they cluster around periods of history in Israel. Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah center on what's called the Neo-Assyrian period before Israel is taken over by Assyria, before they come in and capture Israel and take control of them and put them in bondage. God raised up this, these prophets to speak to the nation of Israel to say, listen, judgment's coming, and the only thing that will save you from this judgment, Amos records this in 5.24, he says, the only thing that will save you from the judgments that's coming against you as a nation is that you would let justice run down like water and righteousness flow like a river. Justice and mercy and righteousness have always been the directives of God for his people. It's his covenantal promise to live in justice and righteousness under his leadership through his covenants. And so Amos's announcement, Hosea's announcements, we see it acted out in Jonah, was repentance. Repentance that leads back to God. Repentance that turns us away from our evils and turns us back to the fellowship with God. Amos is known as the judgmental prophet. Hosea gets to be the lover. Why, do I, I, why did this come up in my heart a few weeks ago and months ago about Amos? It's because I felt like there were people in our congregations in this day and in this hour that are like Amos, that God's tapping them on the shoulder and saying, I need you to stand up and say some things for me. I'm not including myself in those. I think there are other people that are called, I'm not disallowing myself, I'd like to participate. But when we talk about the prophets of today, there are so many voices that are going around the world, it's hard to sort it out. You could tell. Thank you. Yeah, I see some deodorant and some water and a little chapstick and... If this message goes bad, I'll read bunny cakes to you. <laughs> Amos, you see, it's a parallel for us today, and I know there's the other messages online. You can listen to that, the first one. This is supposed to be part two of some bomb. Maybe that's what it's going to be. I don't know. <laughs> Amos's ministry only lasted about 10 years. He comes on the scene, he's around for 10 years, and he's gone. We don't know much about him. And his real ministry time of prophesying only lasted maybe for 24 months. 
They will have that, and he makes it in the Bible, right? He had a pertinent prophetic word from God about the judgments that were coming against Israel unless they repented. I'm going to fast forward to the end of this message here. Think about this with me. These prophets stood up, prophesied to Israel, you're going to go into captivity unless. But one day there will be restoration. One day there will be the love of God that will flow in you again, and good things will come. But right now you're in trouble unless. And they poured their lives into these messages. They prophesied faithfully to the people of Israel, to the leadership, to the priesthood, to the kings. And nobody listened. No one listened. Their message fell, not on entirely deaf ears, I'm sure. I'm sure there were people in the nation who were hearing it and saying, we need to do something about this, but they were not the leaders of the nation. They weren't the kings. They weren't the priests. They weren't the affluent. They weren't the influential ones. They were people like you and I who live every day just down at the ground level. And it doesn't mean we're less than just means that we sometimes can't change the atmosphere we live in. But we can personally respond individually to the call of God. We can personally hear the word of the Lord. We can hear the prophetic announcements of God that are happening in the kingdom of God. And we can live in tandem and in flow with the Holy Spirit. We have that ability, every one of us. But we may not be able to change a nation. Today is supposed to be one of a series of message days that are being collectively spoken on in churches around the country that are, that are like election messages. You know, they used to preach election messages where you just preach the word of God about how the word should affect a society and how the word of God should bear over the top of every decision we make as a nation. And pastors around the country would preach these messages not telling people who to vote for, but showing them in the word of God how to vote. Because we're coming into an election. I'm not trying to make this one of those messages. But I am saying we should be hearing what the Spirit is saying to the church. And if that should roll over into how you vote, then praise God. Will we turn a nation? I don't know. Can we? Oh, the church has always had the ability to change the nation in the area of politics. The challenge is getting us to vote. That's it. So right now there's a push on to get 75% of the Christians in America to register to vote and to vote. No good if you don't vote. I'm registered to vote, but I don't vote. Well, you're not much good. You're part of the problem. But if you don't know what the Word of God says, then you don't know how to vote anyway. So maybe it's good for you to stay home on voting day. Am I being harsh? It's okay. interesting component about talking concerning Amos and, and paralleling it into our generation as well as it. I don't have this all sorted out, but when I look at the history of Israel, when they were led by the patriarchs and Moses and Joshua, who are often referred to as charismatic leaders of the nation, in other words, God called them out and said, you lead my people, and the people of God followed behind the leadership. There wasn't a lot of need for prophets. They were existent. They were there. And they announced things from time to time. Especially as it may relate to a particular battle. You know, you would hear the word of standstill, see the salvation of God, or 
you know, let's, let's fast and pray. Let's send the singers out first and let's worship and let, let God destroy our enemies. There were prophetic words that came to the nation to help them along the way. But when there was strong leadership at the helm that was called by God, and again, I'd say patriarchs, Moses, Joshua, the judges that followed, there wasn't a lot of need for prophets. But when Samuel had to finally give Israel a king, and the monarchies began, the prophets began to arise. Why? Because kings go bad. Kings get power-filled. They become power mongers. They become wanting things for themselves. They begin to organize nations for their own glory. They build kingdoms for themselves. It's no different in a democratic society, is it? It still happens today where we live. I look at some of the ballot material, and I said this was an election message, and it probably will turn into one, but I look at some of the stuff that's in my jamming our mailboxes this month, right? You pull it out there, and it's all crumpled in there, and here's all these flyers, who to vote for and what to talk about and who not to vote for and who said why to and not to. And what you'll always see is the name of some guy that's been in politics now for maybe 10 or 12 years that's just moving from office to office, right? He was one of these, now he wants to step up and become one of those. Or now he was one of those, now he wants to step up and become one of those. You know, they're all aiming at the presidency at some point, right? They want to be this, then they want to be that, and then they want to be the treasurer, and then they want to be the governor, and then they want to be something. It's because they get into the process of leading people and being in power, and they get addicted to it. In the history of Israel, when that occurred with kings and leaders, the prophets rose up. God rose up the prophet. He'd speak to him, say, okay, it's time to stand up and tell us as a nation. Tell the nation what I'm saying because these leaders are not doing that. They're leading my people astray. So Samuel transitioned as the final judge into a monarchy with Saul, and that right away didn't go very well. And the prophets of Israel, interestingly, weren't always interested in individual morality issues. They weren't lost in one sin issue of a, of a person or one lack in a person's life. They might have spoken to a person or to a king or to a priest or even a fellow prophet, but their major concern and their drive from the Holy Spirit was for the entire nation. One of the most distinctive traits and cultures of Israel from the time of monarchies until the very end of the Old Testament, when you read these minor prophets, the distinctive trait of Israel's culture and religion was the fact that it had prophets who were speaking the word of the Lord. This made them so different from every other nation. Other nations had prophets and soothsayers and diviners and wisdom people. But like Daniel in his situation, after all of them were examined, the ones that really elevated in the midst of need were those who were called out by God and whose anointing rested upon them. Right? You know, Daniel said, give us the 
Give us the Daniel fast, if you will. Give us just vegetables and stuff for about 10 days. Let's see how this works out. Me and Shadrach and Abednego here, Meshach, we'll, we'll just eat vegetables. And then you check us in 10 days and see if we're okay. And when they finally get in front of the king, the king says, there isn't anybody this wise in all of, in all of my guys. These little Israelite guys are pretty sharp. Why? It wasn't because they were eating vegetables. Right? Not entirely. Not a bad diet. But the difference was they were God's people. And he was going to use them to guide a nation. You realize Daniel was about 16 maybe when he went into captivity? And he lived in captivity for 60 years. That's a pertinent thought for me today. The thing that made the prophets prophets, think about this with me, and this is important today because the Bible talks about seers. Seers is the word that was used in Hebrew before they started calling them prophets. And the reason they called them seers is because they had a sense of things about them. It was said about the sons of Issachar that they knew how to discern the times and seasons that they were living in, and they knew how to tell Israel what to do in response to what they could see happening. This was one of their earmarks as a tribe. And so the, all of their leaders were on board when it was time to move Israel and do something. They'd say to the sons of Issachar, what do you make of this? These guys, well, we're sizing up. We kind of see how things are going. This is what's happening, so we should move this direction. We should take this action. They knew what to do in their own setting. And seers, oftentimes, and we have a lot of these in our culture, Seers are people that can look at the events that are going on around the world and make sense out of all of it and tell us where it's leading. Now, some of you may take issue with this next comment, and and it's okay if you do. You can boo me and shout me out, and I'll stop preaching. I just don't know how you would feel about Ayn Rand. But in 1957, Ayn Rand wrote Atlas Shrugged. How many of you have ever read 1,200 pages of Atlas Shrugged? No. Make it easy on yourself. Go to Netflix and see if you can watch part two. Part one's already been taken off. But they did turn it into a movie, and it's worth watching. But Atlas Shrugged probably was recommended reading in high school for us, which is why I never read it. I just seem to never read all that recommended reading. My apologies to those educators in the room. It was a rebellious youth, what can I say? But she wrote stuff in 1957 that said, this is where the United States is going if it doesn't stop what it's doing. In 2007, 2008, 2009, Ayn Rand died and probably, I don't know what the statistic is, maybe sold 150,000 of those books. People rebelled again and didn't, didn't like it and said it was crazy and you know, her ideas about economies and people and altruism and dystopias and all these things she had included in there were just weird thoughts. But when the, our economy started tanking in 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, that book has sold now 7 million copies. I'm not promoting the book. I'm just telling you that she was a seer. She had come from Russia, born to a Jewish family in Russia, and at 12 years old, 
the, the Bolsheviks came and took her father's pharmacy away from him for the good of the people. The government moved in and began to tell everybody how to live. We're going to do it better. We're going to take over. We're going to, we can do it better than you. We're going to tax you. We'll take your money. We'll do it better than you can do it for yourself. It's early 1900s Russia. It sounded like yesterday America to me. Huh? Come on. By the way, a little insert from a man named William Fortune. They've done the math that if you taxed everyone in America who was a millionaire and took away 50%, half of all their income, and applied it to the welfare systems to help everybody, we'd still go broke in five years. There's a, it's not the answer. I'm twisting this up. I'm sorry. How does this have anything to do with Amos? Amos pronounced judgment on all the nations around Israel geographically and then came back and nailed Israel in the middle and Judah too. Other prophets that followed him after, I'm using the map now, Assyria's over here, after he came up from Judah and spoke to Israel and said, unless you repent, unless justice runs down like like rain and, and flows, righteousness flows like a river, you're going into captivity because of your sins against the covenants of God. They didn't listen. They just went on their merry way, said, send that sheep herd or home. We don't need to hear from him. And in 722, Assyria rolls over and wipes out Israel and hauls them off. And then the other prophets start announcing. The other prophets start talking to Judah. Hey, Judah, did you see what happened up in the north? Did you see what happened just a, a little further than you? The same thing will happen to you unless you change your ways. And the prophets came and announced, and the prophets spoke. And they said, no thank you. So in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came by and took Judah captive. It wasn't until we got to the prophets of the Persian period that, the, that hope began to spring again. I will restore you. I'll bring you back. And my love will unfold upon you again. Is God an, a, a mean person? No, he's a covenantal God. Right? And these things are kind of sounding judgmental and harsh. Whole nations going into captivity. People being hauled out of their homes. I was talking with Pastor Floyd just before the service started and uh, was mentioning Daniel who had his own place, served the king, was in leadership, was helping the nation. But three times a day he would go to his house, open his windows to the east and, and pray and look out and say, you know, I'm not really home. I'm not living where I should be living. I'm in a foreign country and my house is out there somewhere. My nation's out there somewhere. I want to go home. I started in with Ann Rand a little bit, but there are others. You could name a few. I could name a few. I think of uh, earlier than us, Dietrich Bonhoeffer certainly read correctly what was happening in his generation. And as a seer and as a 
prophetic voice, he moved himself back into that arena and finally lost his life because of it. Francis Schaeffer wrote, How Should We Then Live? A summary of how things were going in the, in the world around him and saying, what, how should we respond to these things? I mentioned last time I preached a, a book called One Second After by William Fortune. And it's the depiction of what would happen if an electromagnetic pulse weapon was used against the United States in three different areas of our country. It's depicted in a novel that a cargo ship comes into the Gulf of Mexico, launches three Scud missiles, one east, one central, one west over the United States, explodes an EMP, which when it starts coming through the atmosphere, picks up gamma rays and develops itself and then takes out everything electrical that quick. And our nation turns into like the 1700s in a second. Now, I don't even believe William Fortune's a Christian. I don't think so. He hangs around with guys like Newt Gingrich, if you like him. In fact, Newt Gingrich said to him, here's what happened. There was a, a, a congressional study done on the threat of EMPs in, to the United States. I mentioned this before. And a congressional report that was written on 9-11. One is about something that had happened in the past. The other one was about something that could happen in the future. And on the day, as even William Fortune said, I don't know what idiot scheduled this, but both reports were brought into the place where they're put on public display and in Congress on the same day. And so the, the room where the 9-11 report was given is this thick. Everybody crammed in there, all the news people, everybody wanted to hear what had to be said about the past. Over in the room where the EMP report was being given was empty. It just went totally unnoticed. We tend to turn our back on the future and look into the past. And so that's what happened. And, and that same day, interestingly enough, Newt Gingrich and another man were meeting with William Fortune. And when they met with him, they, they started talking about the, the report and said nobody was there, nobody listened. And, they, and Fortune's a novel writer. He's a, he's a or an author, he said, you've got to write a book about this. That's the only way to get it into public. And you have a miniature Anne Rand story going on where he's saying, okay, I write. he wrote the novel, he got the rough draft done in 11 days, worked day and night, just poured it out. That thing has hit the, you know, it's out there, it's going to get turned into a movie by Warner Brothers someday. And unfortunately, what might happen it will become entertainment rather than a prophetic voice. Now, that's a seer kind of thing. What makes the difference between a seer and a prophet, even though a seer is a prophet, is the anointing, the call of God. The prophet speaks on God's behalf. The prophet says, thus saith the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. They're not saying, this is what I see. Tom Clancy summarized stuff in a lot of his books. I've never verified it, but Tom Clancy, I mean, do you guys read any Tom Clancy books? It's kind of tough to get through them. Um, but at one point, he was writing all this stuff about what could happen in the world, and bombs and warfares and stuff. And the rumor is that, you know, this, the Secret Service went to his house and said, hey, we want to talk to you. Uh, where are you getting your information? 
because you're writing about stuff in public that we're talking about in private. And his answer was, it's obvious, boys. It's obvious. Some of you are reading The Harbinger right now, I've heard. Um, who's the author of that? Jonathan Kahn. Or maybe Rosenberg. There are lots of things out there right now that are trying to announce something to us. And, and it's more than I can handle, I have to tell you. It's more than I have time to read of all. I can't hear every voice. But the difference between a seer who sums up what's going on and a prophet is the prophet may not even know what they're talking about yet. They're just acting under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I mean, when Amos announced the content of the visions in chapter 5 and on in Amos of the judgments of the things that would begin to happen over the nation of Israel, there was no way he could have known those things could be. But they all unfolded exactly perfectly as God announced it through him prophetically. The difference between a seer, a summarizer, and there are lots of them out there, and a prophet is the prophet is speaking under the anointing of God and saying, this is what God says. A lot of us could sum up results and add it up and say we should take action, and I'm, I'm recommending that to us today. Because when I look at Amos saying, this needs to change or there's going to be trouble, and people went, deaf ear, let's do our own thing, and then it happened, couldn't it possibly happen to us too? The setting is very parallel for us. Amos prophesied when prosperity was at its high. Trade was going well around the world, if you will, and the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. There was control over the trade routes. There were sanctions and laws being put in place that said we will own and we will control and we will have, but you will not. We'll tell you what you can have. When it's your turn, we'll give it to you. There were advances in technology and warfare. Hello, sounds like here. Religion was at a high. Hear that clearly. Religion was at a high. But relationship with God was at a low. People loved the religion. They loved the show. They loved to go. They liked to be in the temple. They liked to offer their sacrifices. They liked to be seen. They liked to fulfill the law. They liked to do that and then turn their back and do whatever they wanted. But relationship with the creator was at a low. And I look around sometimes and I think, outside the church, that's what it looks like. Outside the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, people worship everything. And they love it that way. Let's just have religion. Let's pick one. Let's do it our own way. Let's be God ourselves. Secular humanism. Um, it's all around us. People interpreted blessing as, you know, prosperity as the blessing of God. If I'm blessed, God loves me. If I'm not blessed, then God doesn't love me. I don't know. might have been hard to convince Daniel of that when he was hanging around with the lions. Well, I guess God doesn't love me today. Wrong. Hey, Daniel, has your God been able to take care of you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no problem. He loves me all the time. I'm in good relationship with him. It's a good thing I wasn't just following a religion because I might not have made it through the night. But because I know the one who dropped me in here, we're good. Well, come on out of there, buddy. And let's let your enemies go in. 
and they never even hit the floor. There was an ignoring of justice and inequity was rampant. I don't know, it just sounds like today to me. You know, we live in times of instant gratification. I mean, instant gratification, right? We, now, not five seconds from now, now, right? You ever scream at your computer, your phone, or whatever you're using because it didn't Google the answer for you right away? You punch up your search engine to give you the wisdom you don't have? May I announce to you that's a dangerous thing to get used to? Because all I have to do is steal your batteries. And you're the next blithering idiot. I'm not being accusive. I'm just being honest. You take my batteries away and I'm with you. You unplug my devices, turn off my power. See, we live in a culture that doesn't know how to do things for itself anymore. We don't know how to take care of ourselves anymore. We depend on everybody else to do it for us. And on the way, we can get a Starbucks at the drive-thru. Amen? Amen, sister. <laughs> and we expect to get it right and perfect every time. I tell you, you want something to go wrong in a drive-thru? Travel with me. <laughs> Ask Peggy. It doesn't matter where we go. Hey, let's hit that drive-thru. I said, are you sure you want to try that? I mean, I'm driving. I don't know why. It's just something in my personality. It doesn't, I could just order anything, and I'm not going to get whatever I order. It's just... I jokingly say that the in and out along the 10 freeway near Palm Springs still owes me a cup of coffee because I went through there and we got all this stuff for the kids and passing things out and I'm 10 miles up the freeway. Where's my coffee? There's no coffee. That's how it it just happens every time. (laughs) I don't get what I order. (laughs) Kind of like the guy standing, I feel like the guy at the the counter buying the airline ticket. He says, where would you like your ticket? For. He said, oh, I like to just go wherever you're sending my luggage. <laughs> I just feel, that's how it feels. We buy, it at the, we buy it at the store. We don't grow it anymore. I made that up myself. We use technology versus figuring things out for ourselves. And in times of deep trouble and scarcity, my concern is will we be able to handle it? Will we be prepared? Right now, I don't think so. And, and there are people speaking to us about it. But we may be turning a deaf ear. We might be giving at the time of day and saying, yes, okay, I hear what you're saying. That's nice. But I'm still not going to do anything about it. It's the same attitude that landed Israel in trouble. It's the same attitude that landed Judah in trouble. It put them into captivity. Am I saying that we should fear being in captivity? Yeah. I don't want to live in captivity. I don't want to live in captivity. I don't want to be captive to anything except for my Jesus. I don't think that we can take entire care of our own selves. I think that in the community of believers, there's going to be time coming when we need one another desperately. And I hope we learn how to do it before we get there. Something I want you to feel, to, these are things I, I just feel like I'm 
randomly giving you information to some degree. And it may not even be coherent. But what I'd like for you to feel about it is a little nervous. I'd like you to feel that your security is temporary in the world. In Christ, it's permanent. Amen? I'm not taking away salvation. And the fact that whatever happens, I'm going to heaven, it's good. I'm just saying that our temporary safety can be in peril. Amos, you know this. You've seen this on placards. Amos 4.12 says, prepare to meet your God. That was the message that Amos got to deliver. When he got done talking to all the nations around them, and then Judah, and then Israel, and he pointed his finger at Israel, he said, Israel, because you're not responding, prepare to meet your God. He wasn't saying God doesn't like you. He wasn't saying God hates you. He was not indicating that. He was saying God is a covenantal God and you've broken his covenants. You're living outside of his plan and his will. You're laughing in his face. And he is just and righteous. He has to move. So if this is your attitude, prepare to meet your God. And in some cases in our culture, if things begin to fall apart, it'll be that kind of an impact. Wow, prepare to meet your God. You don't have what you need to survive today. We need to be prepared. We need to understand that God has a great displeasure with covenant breakers. We also should hear that God has a tremendous love for his people. In 2 Peter chapter 3, as someone whispers, I knew he'd get to the Bible someday. Second Peter chapter 3, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. And saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, they willfully forget. Willfully forget. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water. By which the world that, that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, don't forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And I don't expect you to grab all that the way I'm seeing it this morning, but I hear Amos in here. You're willfully forgetting. You're scoffing at what I'm telling you. You're saying it's not going to happen, and I'm telling you the word of the Lord says it's going to happen. 
and God is not happy with you and your breaking of his covenant. However, he is so long-suffering and merciful that he waits for you to repent and run back to him so he can embrace you and help you move on. He's ready with righteousness and justice, and he wants to bless. It's not him that's the problem. (laughs) It's the hard-headed followers that we are at times when we say, I thought I heard him, but then maybe not. Well, I'll wait until the next time around when he says it, and then I'll really believe it. And in a catastrophic moment, we wake up the next morning and the power's off. And somebody tells us it's not coming on for at least five years. In an EMP blast, the the projections are that five years after one hits, 80% of the power grid structure in the United States will still be disabled. Still be. We'll be lucky if we can restore 20% in five years. Fortune says, here's why. It's real simple. We don't make the parts. They come from somewhere else. And if our power goes off, it's not like they're standing up really ready to help us get back on our feet. It's going to be chaos. There are other statistics that I won't share because they're just really dismal. What I want us to feel this morning is that there's a dynamic tension that should exist in the life of the believer. Jesus prayed for us in John 17, and he prayed two sentences. They're a little far apart in his prayer. But one is he's saying, Father, I'm coming to you, but I'm leaving them in the world. The ones you gave me, I'm leaving them here in the world. A little bit later, he says, Father, but they're not of the world. You've heard it said. It almost sounds like one verse put together. We're in the world, but we're not of the world right? We're living in the kingdom of God that is all over the world, and we're dispersed throughout every country and every nation of the world. There are believers, and all of us together make up the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It's where God's rule comes to be where you are. You invite his rule at your house, at your work, in your community, where you go. He is is the king, and you are in his kingdom. And you can invite his rule and rulership in every situation of your life. He has promised and is, in fact, fulfilling today the truth that he lives in you. Ah, that's, a, that's almost just too big for my little brain. I know God is God, and he inhabits everything, and he's everywhere, and there's nothing bigger than him, right? And so if he says he's living in me, good enough. Uh, He can do that. I I tend to think as a man and go, well, how could he parcel himself out in so many places at one time? I don't know the answer to that. He's God. He does it. How can he answer? If everybody stopped right now on the planet, six or seven billion people, and everybody decided to pray to him at once, somehow he has the ability to field every prayer individually. Well, that's God. That's the only explanation for that. God. (laughs) There's no physical human understanding that can parcel that one out. I don't think. But the dynamic tension for us is that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're not supposed to be putting down too many roots here. We're supposed to be living in tents. We're just passing through. It's temporary. Don't get too fixated on what goes on here. 
Keep your eyes open. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to the church. We need to really understand the days that we live in, but we, uh, we must, according to Colossians 3.2, set our affections on things above. Right? We're looking, like in Hebrews 11, the leaders of faith that are listed there said, all these died in faith believing, looking for a better country. We're going somewhere else eventually. Setting our mind on things above, we should feel a little discomfort in this world. We don't fit too well here. This message is starting to go backwards. Sorry. You have to keep these in order or it gets crazy. Okay, quickly, what would I like for us to do? Really, when I preach anymore, I'm only trying to do three things in every message. One is I want you to know something. Two, I would like you to feel a certain way about what you know. And then you need to know what to do. One, listen in the spirit. Train yourself to listen in the spirit. Train ourselves, talk with God. He will talk with us. He does. Allow him to live his life in you as he promised. Galatians 2.20, right? What does it say? I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I'm alive. Yet it's not me that's living, but it's Christ who's living in me. This is mysterious to me, but Jesus is living in each one of us right now who have accepted him as a Savior. He's moved in. So now it's not about me living. It's about him living out through me. I mean, that's, we could nod our heads and say yes, but I still don't get it. And I hope you don't. I, if you do get it, please see me afterwards. I'd like to get it. How can I get up every day and say, Jesus, today this is going to be your day. The old me is dead. I'm dead in trespasses and sin, but you revived me, you gave me your life, you lived inside of me, and I'm a brand new creation, so today is about your day. How do you want to live it out through me? Wow, if the church did that on a daily basis, every one of us, things would be dramatically different. So listen in the spirit. What is God saying? Revelation is seven times in there. He that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the church. No truth. Second Timothy chapter 2, 2 says we're supposed to know the truth and we're supposed to be strong in grace. And we're supposed to take what we know and pass it to others who will also faithfully teach it to others. That's a responsibility we have. What do I want you to do? No truth. Examine the truth. Let the word of God rightly divide itself when you read it. Study it to show yourself approved, a workman unto God that doesn't need to be ashamed. Know what the Bible says, and don't just hang on to it, but share it with somebody else. Pass it on. In a, in a, in a realistic, practical way, I would love for every one of us to be prepared for any kind of a disaster that would hit. It doesn't have to be an EMP. I said this in the last message. It could just be a nice earthquake or another forest fire or something that shuts down the roadways to Big Bear and cuts off everything that comes to us in way of supply. They say, you know, our grocery stores keep two to three days of food on the shelves. That's it. They say that in any given community in the United States, if you just shut down and put an isolation around them, they might last 20 to 21 days before they run out of everything. And that means everything in your cupboards and everything in your stores. Three weeks, 
may I just simply say we should be prepared. We live in a place where these kind of things happen. People who live in hurricane zones in the United States, they deal with this all the time. They've got the stuff to button up the windows. They've got food supplies. They've got generators. They've got stuff. It's not that hard to be prepared. But one of the greatest things we're going to need is water. And I'm not, a, I'm not trying to give you a prepper lesson. I'm the worst at it. I just have empty water jugs. So one, listen with the Spirit. Two, know truth and pass it on. Be faithful and be strong in grace and keep your focus. Be prepared, even in the natural. But the Bible says always be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that lies within you. Know the truth and give it to others to give them the same hope you have. That even if this whole thing doesn't ever get better after it goes bad, there's a future and a hope. Be part of the answer. Don't be part of the problem. Know the Amos 3.7 people in your life. What does Amos 3.7 say? There are Amos 3.7 people in your life. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. He still will announce ahead of time what's coming. I believe there could be very specific announcements um, that could be given to us in the spirit that would help us to be prepared in any given situation. But we need to know who those people are. Where's the credibility in their life? Um, Maybe you're one of those people. May I ask you, please, be credible. Be serious. Take your calling seriously. If you're an Amos in the room today, just be ready. Please, for the sake of the body of Christ, we need to know what God tells you to say. But when you come to say it, we need to know that you're credible. Don't be an idiot. (laughs) Okay? Second Peter, we read in chapter 3, I would say don't be dissuaded. Don't let anybody put you off. Remember, Peter told us, Amos told us, other prophets and apostles told us there will be scoffers. There will be those who go, are you kidding? He's never coming back. Everything looks just like it did since creation started. Well, I don't want to be hanging around with that group the day that he comes. I know he's not willing that any should perish, and so he is long-suffering. He's providing time for us to tell the good news. We need to be about the Father's business. And the Father's business is things like in James chapter 1 where he says, pure religion and undefiled is to visit the widow in her distress and watch out for the orphans. Justice and righteousness and equity are the foundation of his throne. Be about the Father's business. Look at what's important. Be involved in those things. I said this fact, the last message, I'll say it here in case you don't decide to listen to the first one, which is fine with me. I did. I listened to it yesterday. I thought it was great. Just kidding. It's really hard to listen to yourself. United States, Christians in the United States spend 80% of the money that they spend on Christian things on themselves. Did I make sense out of that? Out of every $100 I have as a believer, when I involve that finances in Christianity or the propagation of Christianity, I spend 80 to $90 of that every time so that I can consume it on myself. 
That's just a general fact. The rest, of, What's the rest of the world getting any benefit out of my finances? Is the rest of the world getting... The, another fact I mentioned the last time too, I'll say it again here, is that we spend as a country more money in a year in our pet food aisles at the grocery store than all of the collected mission funds given to the world. Did I make sense out of that one? That's, a, that's an indictment is what that is. I mean, we should feel that at our feet. I'm not saying you should feel condemned about any of this this morning, although it probably comes to that to a degree. I'm saying that we need to wake up and hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. We look at these other countries where stuff's going on. I, I don't even like to repeat it in public, some of the things that are happening. It's an atrocity. It's unbelievable that you could line up Christian families and just behead them like they're worthless. And we just, let's go get another bag of dog food. You know, am I making sense? I must be because you're not saying amen very loud. Be about the Father's business. Let's find out what's important to God's heart. Let's get involved in that. I mean, what are we living for, ourselves or for him? We're living towards the end here. We're living towards the a final calling, the place where they hear the trumpet sound and the shout of the archangels and things are going to start happening. We want to take as many people as we can with us. We don't live for ourselves. I'm, I'm not looking forward to being raptured in a brand new Christian T-shirt. Okay, you know what? With a CD in my hand or whatever. You know, I'm, am I making sense? I'd rather have my hand like this to maybe another whole family and say, when I'm caught up, they came with me because I shared the good news with them. Or I reached with my finances into a place like Iran or Iraq and helped somebody else go there. Or Guatemala. Watch for the signs and endure to the end. Let me make this my final point instead of the other five that are right below it. Matthew 24, this is not new news, but let's hear it one more time. Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. (laughs) Those guys are sure cute, like he hadn't seen them. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly. I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. I like this fact, by the way, that in the destruction of Jerusalem, when everything was burning, the gold in the temple was melting and running through the blocks. And so they dismantled it block by block in order to get to the gold. Jesus told them what would happen. Not one stone will be left here on another. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, right, that's across the little valley from Jerusalem, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you'll hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. May I insert, for my own benefit, maybe just kind of strengthening my position this morning, that if Jesus said these things are going to happen, may I suggest some of them may happen where we live. And there is the word of the Lord for preparedness. It could happen here. It's not, well, you, you hear what I'm saying. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Well, I feel like this is happening in the Middle East right now. And then many will be offended, will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Hence why I tell you, get to know the voice of the Lord. Hear what the Spirit is saying so when the other voices start in, you'll know the difference. And they're already started in. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. I pray that's not you this morning. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Endures to hold one's ground in conflict, to bear up against adversity, to hold out under stress, stand firm, persevere under pressure, wait calmly and courageously. It's not passive resignation to fate and mere patience, but the active energetic resistance to defeat that allows calm and brave endurance. That's the definition of the word. He who endures to the end shall be saved. And... This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. For me, there are two definite signs in this verse that I can depend on constantly when I'm looking at the signs of the time. One, are they hating us? And are they killing us? Yes. Is the gospel being preached in every nation? That's our role. That's our activity. I don't get to rule over whether or not I'm being killed. Somebody else is going to do that one. This one I have a say in. This one I can align myself to and say, let's get the gospel preached. I was talking with Susan yesterday about the need for preaching the gospel to the Jews. You know, Paul talked about it in Romans. Oh, if just my countrymen could come to know the truth of this grace in Jesus Christ. If they could just come to know that they could be free without the law. They could just walk right into it and have it. But they were pulled out. They were cut out of the olive tree as a true branch. And you and I were grafted in. He said, but our grafting in is going to make them jealous. And they're going to come and live in the kingdom with us. Wow. We should be preaching to them the gospel to the Jews. Well, let's follow the guiding principles of Jesus. When he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Troubled times come, we're going to be counted on to love one another, support one another, help one another. Either that or we better find a little place in the middle of nowhere to live like some do and become self-sufficient 
and ignore the world until it does whatever it's going to do and try and survive on your own. I don't know that that's a call to community that the Bible has, but I suppose it could work for a while. Will our contemporary prophets find success in their works any more than Amos or Hosea or Zephaniah? Will they? Do we think our generation is much different than the other generations? Do, will we listen or will we turn a deaf ear? Will they turn our culture around or will they simply be obedient to announce what God says as everyone ignores them and things go bad anyway? And probably a strong question we should ask and we, I don't know that we can answer it. Will they be faithful to their calling? Will some of you be faithful to your calling to say what the Lord is speaking to you and be credible? Amos 3.8, let me close. It says this, a lion is roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? That was Amos's impetus. That was his answer to the high priest. A lion's roared. Who should not be afraid of that? The Lord God has spoken. We must prophesy. We must speak what's coming. Father, this morning we ask that your grace and mercy would rule over our hearts and lives. Father, I ask that you will take the truths of this day and engraft them to our spirit. Lord, the things that have just been extraneous or mine, outside confines of what you wanted to say, I pray that you will forgive me and somehow erase and eradicate them from our thinking. Lord, stir us. Teach us. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to know the difference between your voice and every other voice. Give us faith, courage, and a desire to be obedient to what you're saying in this hour. We thank you for the power of Jesus living in us. Father, I'm convinced that it's not possible to live this life on my own. I must have your grace, the grace of Jesus the life of Jesus flowing in me. And I pray that for the body here this morning, that they too will draw their strength from the very life of Jesus within them. And we wouldn't depend on our own strength in any way, but give every day into your hand as we see it coming. Pray these things in Jesus' name and thank you for them. Amen. Amen.